This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 72. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 72 you're listening to, and this particular episode is brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Audio-Technica, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio, and DistroKid. Welcome once again to Episode 72. Man, we're getting closer to 75, and of course, right around the corner will be Episode 100 before you know it. When we do get to 100, we will celebrate. I guarantee you we will celebrate, and you all will benefit from that celebration, hopefully. Maybe not every one of you, but many of you, hopefully. I can't say yet. Anyways, it's a big secret. I'm working on something. Anyhow, welcome to another great episode I have on today from Rogue Planet Mastering in upstate New York. Going to be talking with owner and mastering engineer Mike Collasian, and we're going to be talking about his workflow and his place and, you know, all the usual topics that we, we like to cover. So looking forward to that. Got some, a little on the more serious note here, I want to mention something to you. There is a gentleman, a fantastic engineer. He needs our help in a big way. I'm talking about Tom Size. And many of you know, or may know Tom Size. Tom uh, has been around for a very long time, and he's responsible for, for over a decade worth of amazing sound from a lot of different people, from uh, Y&T and the Manichetti Band to people like Aerosmith, Journey, Mr. Big. I used to work over at Fantasy Studios for a really long time. From what I understand, Tom is an all-around good guy, and he needs our help in a big way. So Tom has uh, unfortunately been diagnosed with, with the worst type of skin cancer one can contract, and that's um, it's a very aggressive strain, and the cancer is spread to his brain. Now, from what I understand, what he has is the same thing a former U.S. President Jimmy Carter had at one point, and I believe uh, Jimmy Carter solved his cancer with immunotherapy. So I'm not saying uh, I know any of how that works, but what I'm saying is is that uh, there is definitely some hope here. So sometimes when people hear that things have gone to your brain, they just write you off. So I'm asking you not to do that here in this case. So what am I asking you? I'm asking you to go to www.gofundme.com, help Tom Size. That's H-E-L-P-T-O-M-S-I-Z-E, help Tom Size. This is your opportunity to maybe, you know, kick in a few bucks, whatever you can afford uh, to help Tom uh, in raising funds to help cover the cost of everything. The goal is $100,000. Right now, they're at $25,787. i am just making a personal plea to all of my listeners to, to consider this. You know, whether it's a dollar, $5, $10, whatever, every little bit helps, as you know. You know, I, I don't know Tom. Tom and I have talked over email about him being on the show, and scheduling-wise, we couldn't make it work at the time. I hope to have him on in the future. But I look at it like this. Um, you know, Maybe I don't know all of you personally, and and you don't know me personally, but we have a community. We have a community of recording people, no matter whether you make records or video games or whatever. And, you know, when a member of the community needs your help, it's time to jump in if you can. Like I say, I'm not asking you to dump in a ton of money, but uh, if you could just contribute, like I say, a dollar, five dollars. And, yeah, I hope if I'm ever uh, in the in this position where uh, cancer would ever get me or whatever ailment it happens to be or any of you, I would hope that uh, all of you would, uh, you know, come to my side. I certainly would come to your side as best I could. So just making a little bit of a plea here on the community front. So once again, that's www.gofundme.com slash help Tom size, Google Tom size, look at the credits, look at what he's done, studio work, live sound, all kinds of stuff. So there it is. Um, on a less serious note, I just want to, of course, uh, tell you about uh, our new one of our new sponsors here this month. Uh, that's DistroKid. And the idea behind DistroKid is they are a music aggregator in the spirit of uh, uh, CD Baby and TuneCore, but they are a lot better than both of those, I'll tell you that. And they get your music onto iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon, Google Play, the whole thing, you know, Tidal, YouTube, and all that. 
You get to keep 100% of your royalties, you get paid monthly, and they get you in stores 10 to 20 times faster than any other distributor at a fraction of the price. And the price is really what is key in this element. If you were to line up all these digital aggregators, you would see that you are going to pay significantly less uh, for this service if you're uploading music. So now if, if you're an engineer or producer, maybe you're not uploading the music, but your clients are, and you want your clients to have uh, opportunities where uh, they can save some money uh, because it's all about, you know, giving the clients as much full service as possible if you can. So what do you pay? You pay only $19.99 a year to upload an unlimited amount of albums and songs. So you know, if you were to go to one of their competitors, they charge at least two times that just to upload one album. So that's not cool. That's why I'm really uh, into DistroKid. I think that uh, the service they provide here is great. And I've, being one who continues to upload music through uh, some of my past band's work, I've struggled with this. You know, we're not really serious about playing out live or really doing serious promotions. So we just like to release stuff. But, you know, when it costs you 40 bucks to upload something and then uh, you don't get to keep 100% of your royalties or you got to re-up every year, you know, and, and it adds up to, you know, in my band's case, it can add up quickly to over 100 bucks a year. And we just don't sell enough of that so to uh, justify that. So to me, this is a really great deal. So check out distrokid.com. That's where they're at. But if you do want to sign up and you want to save a little more, go to the DistroKid banner on the right-hand side of the Working Class Audio page. We have a special deal with them where they've given WCA listeners 10% off. So make sure you head on over there and check that out. So that's it. Uh, yeah, DistroKid. Uh, donate a little money over to uh, Tom Size at his GoFundMe account, uh, www.gofundme.com. Help Tom Size. I know I've said it a few times, and I just I really want to hammer the point home. I really want to want us to help Tom out if it's possible. Well, that's it. Let's uh, let's jump on over to my interview with Mike Collision over at Rogue Planet Mastering in Upstate New York here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I have to ask, is it Collagian? Collagian. Collagian. Yes. God, I'm so off. It's okay. I, I, you know what? That's not really that bad. We, we get Callahan sometimes. It's frequently butchered. So you did pretty good. Collagian. Okay. Collagian, And yes. wh what's the origin of that? It's Armenian, actually. It's Armenian. Okay. Yes. Which I don't look very Armenian. Um, do, do you feel Armenian? I, I don't. I think so. <laughs> my, my, my father is Armenian and looks Armenian. Very dark hair. Dark features. My brother is very Armenian. Well, pretty much my father, my brother, and every Armenian who I've ever met look like they could be related. Uh, and I'm kind of the outlier because my mother's Polish, blonde hair, blue eyes. Uh -huh. I certainly got those genes. <laughs> First of all, your, your mastering facility is called Rogue Planet Mastering. Yes, sir. And you are located specifically where? I'm in a town called New Paltz, New York. Um, it's like, it's kind of a cool college town at the at the base of some cool mountains, uh, very kind of liberal, artsy, cool area in uh, in New York. It's like probably an hour north of Manhattan. It's just a straight shot up, maybe ten minutes from the Hudson River. Okay, but you know, almost directly north of the city. Okay, and how did you find yourself out there? Uh, it's not really far from where I grew up. Actually, um, I was born and raised probably. 45 minutes from here in another town, a little bit further south. And so was my wife. And it was just kind of, you know, one of those things where she got a job somewhere and I had a studio in uh, a town called Poughkeepsie, New York, which is uh, not the night, well, not all of it. Marist College is there, which is a great college and there's some good areas, but a lot of the town is um, less than fantastic as far as the area. And of course, <laughs> that's where all the studios wind up because that's where the big spaces are for cheap and, you know, the, the old repurposed warehouses and all that stuff. So I was there for a while. And basically, my wife and I were both, you know, driving like 70 miles a day uh, for work. And we just said, hey, we're going in the same direction. Let's just move closer. So we did. And this is kind of where we picked, you know, it was just a, a, a there's a state school here. It's an art school, um, not really music so much. But it just kind of has that vibe that just seemed to fit really well with with who we were as people. 
and also w- with the business. Um, I should say at the time, I was producing and recording and engineering uh, and everything. So that was kind of more of a factor. Now I could really be on the moon as long as I had an internet connection. Yeah. Uh, but then it was like, you know what? People are going to want to come here. It's gorgeous. There's lots of stuff to do. There's bars. There's restaurants. Um, we found a, a space for the studio that was cheap and huge and nice. So we just, you know, we went for it. I'm curious how you wound up in mastering and is that what you're mainly and only doing now? Yeah, it it is all that I'm doing now. Occasionally, I'll take on a mixed project on the side. Usually, it's for like a friend who went with somebody and didn't have the best results. And I'm like, hey, you know what? I, I can do this. It's going to take a while. I'm going to do it at night and on the weekends. And it's kind of funny because I have a little mix rig at home that has you know, $150 M audio speakers and the cheapest Focusrite interface that you can get. And that's it. That's, you know, if I, if I do a mix for a friend or if I, you know, I I mainly built it to write my own music and to continue uh, being creative that way. But when I come here to the studio, I've got like $10,000 speakers in a treated room, but yet I go home and I mix stuff on this. Like, it's like, I can't hear anything. So, okay, sure. (laughs) It sounds fine. I don't even know what I'm listening to. Um, but how I got into it, it, it's funny. Uh, I've heard a couple people, and I think on on your podcast too, it's like not that many people really say, oh, I want to be a mastering engineer. That's what I want to do. Um, for whatever reason, I did. I remember looking at like, you know, these album jackets and uh, seeing Howie Weinberg and Ted Jensen mastered by, and I'm like, okay, what is that? Like, what is that stage of the process? And I think part of it stemmed from when I was really young, uh, my father, and this is super fortunate, my father was a, uh, owned a business that he repaired stereo equipment and audiophile gear and TVs and VCRs. So he always had tape decks and reel-to-reels and DAT machines. And, you know, sometimes it was parts machines. And I would say, Dad, can, you know, can I, can I, here's a speaker cabinet with no speakers in it. Like, can I put these speakers in and try to mess around with it and hook it up and see, you know. So I always had stuff to experiment with. So I started playing music and recording when I was maybe eight or nine, you know, and it would just be, here's this tape machine that my dad brought home that had a microphone input and I have a microphone and I'm going to mess around with it and then I'm going to play it back and from my other stereo and have the microphone in the room and, you know, overdub with a microphone going through the room and just had no idea. But I remember listening to these albums and I would say, okay, producing, I kind of understand what that is. Mixing, I kind of get that. But mastering, what is that? I have no idea. I remember asking my dad and he was like, well, you know how like a stereo has an equalizer on it and you can listen to the song and you can make it sound different. That's kind of what these guys do. And I was like, that's it. That's what I got. I got to do that. That's the best. Sounds like the easiest job ever, you know? (laughs) Uh, So it was kind of always something that I had interest in and the whole time that I was I was playing in bands, I saw that you're a drummer and did a lot of touring. I'm a drummer as well. And that was, you know, I went to school for recording uh, only because I was not good enough at graphic design to make it through college doing that. So I went to Full Sail and I got out and promptly went on tour. I just like, I was like, you know what? I got to go play music. My band is doing all right. That's what I want to do. Through that, I made some connections and, and started, started making albums and uh, had kind of a home studio set up, which evolved. Uh, but the whole time... I was really fascinated by mastering. You know, I think a lot of people go through this when you're young and you're recording or you're just starting out. You're in a less than ideal situation. You're looking for a place. Oh, I have to record drums. Where am I going to record drums? I don't have anywhere to do that. I I can't do it in my house. My mom's working from home upstairs. I'm going to do it in a garage, you know, and I would always think, man, if I could just make a living mastering, I just needed, I just need one room. You know, I could do that. I just envisioned myself doing it for so long. And eventually, for whatever reason, it just slowly crept into what I was doing. It became a part of my workflow. I think, you know, an engineer would, another fellow engineer would say, hey, I have this recording. I need to get it mastered. Do you want to try to master it? I was like, yes, I do. I absolutely want to try to master it. And I just, I've always kind of been the type of person who jumps first and then figures out what you're doing later. Mm -hmm. So it was like, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to try it. And I probably ruined a lot of albums early on doing that. You know, I had no idea, but I was just, I'm going to learn. I'm going to make this happen. And it it got to the point where over almost 15 years, maybe 12 years, it was like 50% of what I was doing. It was actually more than 50% of the money I was making and probably less than 50% of the time that I was spending. So it was kind of like, I saw myself getting to the point where, you know, I could probably do this full time. And I have to say, one of the big things that helped me 
was, um, are you familiar with the microphone company Avantone? Uh, yes. They make those mix cubes and they make the CV12s and the, so uh, I'm friends with the owner. He's a good friend of mine for a long time. And their whole thing is that they're they're made in China, but they're quality controlled in the United States, uh-huh. um, retubed, checked, completely gone over. So I got offered the gig to do the quality control on these these microphones, which is you know it's a it's a it's a part time thing. When the microphones come in, I pick them up and, and do the work, and uh, and I you know I have help doing it now. But it was one of those things where okay, it's kind of found money and it's steady. So now. I don't feel so nervous about making this jump. And I just sold, I, I told all my bands, I'm not booking any tracking sessions anymore. And I sold every piece of recording gear I had and invested it all and then some back into mastering gear. And that was about only a year and a half ago. That's interesting. So you got this steady gig and you still have that steady gig now. Yeah, I do. I know it's, um, you did say it's part-time, but I... It, it is. I mean, it's 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 really like a day a week. And now I have... Um, some help doing it. So, it, so my time expense on it is minimal. Um, but it was really the thing at the time that in, in hindsight, I didn't even really need it. Uh, not knock on wood. It, the, the first year of me mastering the first full year was easily the most lucrative year of my recording career by twofold. And huh. I don't, I mean, I was lucky to have that happen. I think a lot of it has to do with some of the contacts I made as a recording engineer and as a musician and doing a lot of test masters and fortunately winning a lot of shootouts. Um, but the the microphone thing was kind of like the security, the safety net that let me take that step, uh-huh. you know, which I'm very glad I took. Do you miss recording tracking a bit? Yeah, sometimes I do. Uh-huh. Um, when I, I'm in a space now that's a, it's about, 3,000 square feet, and I split it with two other engineers who are friends of mine. Initially, we, you know, we have a shared tracking space and three kind of control rooms and some overdub rooms. I've converted my room to just a mastering room, but sometimes I hear them working on like an awesome band. And sometimes it's an awesome band that I used to work with that now they go to one of the other guys, and I'm like, oh man, I miss that, you know? Um, and sometimes, you know, I'll like, kind of get the bug out of my system working on my own music um i've considered there there have been a couple bands that i said hey if you ever do another record you know i'd consider me i'd maybe do it but i think that the benefits of mastering full-time you know when the work is here for me just like crush the the benefits of you know recording all the time to me mastering has such an allure for for a number of reasons and it probably especially now for me in my late 40s with kids and you know living where I'm living and uh, my setup, the allure to me is you can work by yourself. You're at the end of the process. And I don't mean to be an asshole, but sometimes working with bands can be very, a very trying thing. Absolutely. And, you know, I believe me, I've had a ton of great experiences. I've had very, very few negative experiences, but occasionally those negative experiences are so <laughs> negative that I'm just like, oh my God. Let me just be at the end of the process, taking care of people where your exposure to them is limited and, and your, your, um, your, your job is kind of a little more focused to some degree. And I don't know. I just, I I like that solitude. Yeah. yeah, As social as a person as I am, I do like that solitude. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, and, and you're right. You know, sometimes you get sessions and everyone I know who is an engineer, at one point or another, we've had the conversation where one of us has been like, oh, my God, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going back <laughs> to college. Like, this is this band is, you know. And I think that that was, like, a thing for me, too. When I would get a band in that that I didn't really think was great, I, I think earlier on I was able to, like, get myself into that, like, yeah, they're good. This is good. Like, you know, you, you – I don't want to say you trick yourself, but you put yourself inside of it like they are, and you're more excited about it, and you're able to – really help them. And I think at some point I realized that like, I wasn't that enthusiastic about it. I was more enthusiastic about making it sound really good, you know, which is big. But I think when you're doing production and you're working with bands, the most important thing is making sure that they're, what they're recording is good. Mm -hmm. Is this a good song? You know what I mean? Are you helping them get the best performance they possibly can? And I was like nitpicking my kick drum sound. And I was like, you know what, maybe this is a sign that I should be, I would be better served nitpicking a mix. Um, 
so yeah, definitely that that was part of it. Uh, some bad experiences, and again, the good experiences are what make me miss it sometimes. Uh, another thing was as the time I was constantly here. I mean, I was, and and that's like something that I always look back on, and I'm like, you know, I got to remind myself that like I I did like recording, and fortunately, when I stopped, I was completely booked. I mean, I it wasn't like the work dried up and I said, let me try something else. It was like, okay, I'm not booking any bands after this day. This is it. And I see this a lot too. I was so behind. I had mixes overdue and I'm recording a band and then trying to mix this band. And then people are still sending me stuff to master. And I was like, I got to simplify this. I had just had a child and I wanted to spend more time with my wife and my daughter. And I was just here all the time. So mastering was huge in that respect. You know, I, I kind of work a normal schedule. You know, sometimes things are on crazy deadlines, uh, but typically I can come in and I know what I have to work on on any given day and I sit down and I do the work and I go home for dinner and then I'm home, you know? Yeah. Now I wonder if there's a correlation between people having children and shifting into these modes of of this type of work where they're I, mixing or they're mastering I think there definitely is. Yeah. Because you, you, man, it is a grind recording, especially when you're doing it on a really high level. And I, I, uh, you know, the guys I work with here are great and they make great records, but man, the amount of time that they, they put in, it's crazy. And I did it too. And, and I, and I was also one of those guys where I did pretty much everything myself. I mean, I sometimes would have a guy I would send off to do vocal tuning, but my approach was very hands-on. I'm a big editor, you know, everything, drums, you know, editing, tightening up everything, cleaning everything up, tracking. I would track all the guitars DI and do editing and reamping and, and you know, melodining and, you know, getting everything. I was fanatical about that. So it just made the process take so long. In hindsight, way too long and I overdid it. But because of that, it was just hours upon hours upon hours. And and to be honest with you, I had a hard time getting bands to pay the amount of money that I thought was fair for the amount of time that I was putting in. Not because they weren't willing to, but because they just didn't have it. So it was like all this time, not as much money. And I kind of just like analyzed the mastering side of the business and I analyzed the recording side of the business and I just looked at my life and I was like, you know what? I, th I really think that this is the smart move. I also uh, had taken on a business manager maybe six or eight months before I made the switch. And he kind of saw the writing on the wall. So he did some research into, you know, and ran the numbers. And he was like, you, you really should do this. Um, it would make a lot of sense. I mean, you're going to, you're, you're making 70% of your money from about 30% of your work, you know, your time. If you want to spend more time with your kids and your wife, this is this is the smart move. So I did it and have not looked back. Interesting. Your fanatical approach uh, and attention to detail in the tracking, how has that translated into mastering? What, what do you do now that uh, satisfies that desire to really get in there and make it right? Um, I think the biggest thing is that I imagine or I assume that everyone sending me a track has spent that much time on it, you know? So I'm really, uh, I take it really seriously. I, I don't want to mess it up. You know, I, I know that when I spent so much effort and energy and time and I'm working on a song and I would send it off to mastering, it was like, you know, this guy's going to either make it or break it in a half an hour or an hour, you know, for the song. And, and I know that when I got something back that was less than great, it, it bummed me out. And then when I got something back that was fantastic, it was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I, I worked so hard and I was so happy. And then I sent it off to this guy and I had a couple of guys who I, I used to use all the time when I was mixing. I, I don't like to you know master my own stuff. And they would send it back and it was like, this is even better. And, and that's how I want to make everyone feel. So I guess the attention to detail thing works that way where I assume that these people have slaves over this and I don't want to, you know, it, I don't take it lightly uh, when I have control over making it great or terrible. Um, and the other thing is I, I'm not afraid to really get in there and, and fix stuff up. You know, if I have, if there's a chorus that needs to be processed differently, or if there's something that's, you know, if there's a, a part of the song that there's like a weird thing going on and maybe I can edit and move something over, you know what I mean? I, I don't, it doesn't always work and it, it doesn't always need to be done, but uh, I feel like my editing chops allow me to kind of feel stuff like that out. You know what I mean? If I really need to dig in and tweak something, I'm not afraid to try it at least. Let's say you get something in that's just not to your expectation of like, like 
you think, what was this mixed on? <laughs> you know, like, why is there so little bass or so much bass? Or why is this so aggressive and bright? Um, do you ever come to the point where you make a phone call to the mix engineer and say, you know what, I really want to do this, but I think you could do something different here. Or can you reduce the amount of this? Or do you just dig in and take care of it? The way I look at it is if I can fix the problem without it sounding like it was ever a problem, then I'm going to fix it. But a lot of times, especially with mastering, if you're going to, if you have a big low end problem and you fix it, you're fixing it kind of at the expense of something else. And then you have to weigh that out. How, you know, how much are you messing up, you know, the kick drum by fixing the bass? And is it acceptable? You know, a lot of times I can get, and, you know, we're talking about something that's like way blown out of proportion. If it's not that bad, I'll fix it and I'll say, you know what? It, I'm listening to it now, not mastered, just with this fix applied. And it sounds like it was, I got it and it was great. So that's good. Then I'm going to move forward. If I can't do that, yeah, I'll make a call. Um, and I think that that's maybe something that I, I get a little assistance from the time I spent mixing that I can say, hey, this sounds a little out of whack. You know, what are you doing? Uh, wh what do you have going on? Let me send me a screenshot of the session or send me the session or, you know, let's take a look at it. Why don't you try this? You know, maybe you can use this processing because as kind of an ex mixer, I have a little bit more of a vocabulary to help them, yeah. be, you know, constructively fix their stuff. Uh, and it happens. I mean, I think maybe 25% of the time I'll ask for something. It's usually something pretty minor, though. Uh, like, you know, the big, big offenders are the music is dark, but the vocal is bright. The vocal is dark, but the music is bright. Uh, stuff like that. Or the vocals are too low or they're too loud, you know, that sort of thing. So it's usually pretty minor. What do you charge and how do you, like, do you charge per song or per project or by hour? There's kind of a whole breakdown that I use. I'm, I'm pretty inexpensive. For a regular digital delivery single, I only charge $50 a song, um, which I think is probably on the less expensive end, particularly for guys who are using full, you know, analog chains. I mean, most, I do use plugins, but most of my stuff is, you know, analog, my major processing. I have mastering speakers, a treated room and everything like that. Um, and it, it does go up depending on, you know, there's, you know, extras if you want different delivery formats, alternate mixes, instrumentals, etc. I would say average for like a 10 song album or something is about 700 to $750. Because people tend to like vinyl pre-masters or mastered for iTunes versions and, you know, but it's still, I, I try to keep it pretty affordable. And the way I look at it is I do that because my operation is pretty lean. I don't have a ton of overhead here. My space is, you know, affordable. And really the only overhead I had was the purchase of the gear, uh, which, you know, if I kind of amortize that over a certain amount of time, I, I can get away with charging what I charge, you know. And just as long as I have the volume of work, which has been there so far. How do you get your clients? Like, do you put a lot of effort into uh, social media or any of that? Or I think most of it is word of mouth. Um, I have done in the past kind of like Facebook advertising and stuff, and I've seen pretty good results uh, with that. I try to network as much as I possibly can. I think that that's a big thing. Um, network in person? In person, when possible. Um, I am you know, fairly close to New York City, which is nice. But even more than that, just online with Facebook, you know, just trying to... It's, it's a tricky thing because you don't really want to like cold message somebody and just, you know, put yourself in somebody's face and be like, hey, you know, here, here I am, give me work. Um, but... If I ever have the opportunity to find somebody whose work I really admire and just chat with them, you know, and kind of organically build to the point of, hey, why don't you let me try a test master on your next thing? Even if you've already got a guy that you're using, why not send it to me and I'll do another version and you can compare the two for future reference. And if you don't like it, then that's fine. Um, and I think that some of my best clients have come about that way. You know, I have a great client who... I got because he was looking for someone to build some mic pre's for him. And I was like, listen, I'll build them for you for nothing. If you send me a test master on every one of your records for the next year, I'll build it for free. You don't even have to use my master. I'm just going to build you the mic pre. And I did. And I built it for him. And then he started sending me test masters. And now I master probably most, if not all of his stuff. Wow. Yeah. And it's like, why not? You know, I like building mic pre's and he needed them and he's a cool guy. And I figured, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Damn, that's that's impressive. I like that initiative. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, I figure if it, you know it helps him out at the same time, and uh, and I find that like especially with mastering, 
you can send your your mix out to 10 different guys if they're good. They're all going to be a little bit different, but they're probably all going to be good. And you could probably release any of them. You know what I mean? I think the difference from one great mastering engineer to another great mastering engineer, from a good mastering engineer to a good mastering engineer is a taste thing. Uh, And it's probably pretty minimal. So I think that like being a nice guy and being, you know, for the, for the engineer or the band to be like, yeah, this guy was cool. Like he gets it. Like he likes our stuff. and, And like, I would have a beer with him. I think that that goes a long way, you know? Yeah, it definitely does. Well, as far as your approach, first of all, musically, what's the music that's predominant coming coming to you? It's probably predominantly rock, you know, hard rock, not really metal, um, but hard rock, indie rock, and then kind of into the pop rock genre. There's some outlier stuff. I mean, I do stuff from all over the world, from Israel, from Bangladesh, Spain, Australia. Um, but I would say that the the meat and potatoes of it is kind of just rock and roll and what do you think is important to these clients i mean obviously they want their shit to sound good yeah that's a no-brainer but do you think like these fine details like mastered for itunes is that a critical thing um i don't think so i mean i think that my impression is that a lot of our clients don't really even consider it until they submit the songs and then we say hey do you want this and they're like well what is it you know and then you explain it to them and then, you know, maybe they want it like DDPs, DDP delivery. Most people are like, well, what's a DDP? Why do I need it? And it's like, well, if you're going to send it to a pressing plant and you want to make sure it's exactly right, this is what you should do. Okay, cool. I'll, I'll do that. Um, so I, I think that really the most important thing is how easy it is for them to deal with you, whether it's within their budget and whether or not it sounds good. Uh, we're, we're huge. And I say we, I have... Uh, I call him a project manager and he's been with me for like a year and a half. And the two of us are huge on workflow, the whole client experience, how we manage everything. So we probably spent, we're still refining it, but the first six months that we worked together, we would meet up once or twice a week and just say, okay, how are we going to handle the projects that are coming in as far as what stage in the process they are? You know, if a client has submitted something, if they're, if they've submitted the information about a project, but we haven't yet gotten the mixes versus when it's ready for me to work on versus when it's done, but we're going back and forth with revisions. You know, how can we organize all these projects so that we can handle a high volume and not get confused? I don't want anybody to ever get the wrong files. I don't want anybody's stuff to get lost by the the wayside. So that was a huge thing for us. And I'm pretty happy with what we've come up with. We have a pretty good system for when a client comes to us and they're ready Steve does a bit of interfacing with kind of the more mundane stuff with like, you know, money and who are we contacting and, you know, who's the, who's in charge. And then I kind of do the more artistic stuff. What, you know, what, what's the sequencing going to be like? You know, I, I always like to ask for references. Sometimes they say, Hey, just make it, you know, sound like the mix, but better or do whatever you want. But a lot of times if I can say, Hey, what are like, what do you want me to listen to when I'm uh, zeroing all my gear before your session? You know, what should I put on what, you know, while I'm having my coffee between two songs that I'm mastering, you know, what should I listen to? And they'll say, Oh, check this album out. And I'll listen to it. And that that's, you know, I always like to do that. I like to reset between projects or even sometimes in the middle of a project, just go back and listen to something I know sounds great for 10 minutes and then go back to the mastering. And, um, Letting them pick that kind of, I think, helps me get them more of what they were hoping for. So we're big on, you know, I'll collect that information, but getting back to the workflow, we're big on making sure that when you come to master a song, it's like we're super communicative, super on the ball, uh, and we get your stuff back to you, you know, pretty quickly, and there's no confusion about anything and, you know, who's doing what and where we're at. And uh, I think that that's a big part of it, you know, with our clients coming back. Hope you're enjoying the interview here with Mike Collision from Rogue Planet Mastering here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. A lot of good information to be had, but we're going to take a little sponsor break here with Audio-Technica, and I'm going to give you my pitch here for the headphones that I'm wearing as I record this, and that's the ATH-M40Xs. I love these headphones. Uh, I love them for a number of reasons. They sound great, and I discovered that they sound great because I was able to A-B them against all the other Audio-Technica headphones that they offered when I was at a Pollock Audio Conference a, a couple of years ago. 
And I went up to the AT booth and I was able to plug in some music from my device uh, into their whole headphone system. And I was able to listen, you know, uh, through each set of headphones they had. And what I came across with these M40Xs is that the bottom end was not overdone. That's one of my biggest complaints when you have a pair of headphones where the bottom end just sounds like it's super exaggerated. I hate that. And these didn't do that. And not only that, but the mid-range sounded really clear. It was really, uh, it was a mid-range uh, quality that I felt like, ooh, I could probably mix on these and feel fairly confident in what I'm hearing, or I could check my mixes on here and know for sure what's going on. So I enjoy listening to them. I definitely enjoy checking my mixes on them. The price is really good too. I paid at the time, I think they were 99 when I started to get interested in them, but I'm noticing here now uh, on amazon.com, they are $79.91. Free shipping, of course, if you have a Prime account. So what I'm going to do is I will put a link to this Amazon link here uh, on the WCA Recommends page. So make sure you check that out. I'll try, I'll put it at the top of the page so you don't have to go scrolling down looking for it because we, we got a few things over there. We've got some books and some other things for you to check out. So I'll, I'll make sure and put this at the top. Yeah. Click on that. If you're interested, you can't go wrong with this price. And I'm just going to, I'm going to give them my, you know, ringing endorsement. I really enjoy these uh, headphones quite a bit and yeah. And I didn't pay too much for them, which is great. So that's that. That's my pitch for those. I'm not going to even give you the specs. You can check out the specs on your own and you can see, um, you know, does it meet your criteria? And uh, if so, you know, take a chance. You can always return them if you don't like them, right? That's the way Amazon works, huh? So uh, there it is, the ATH M40X is from Audio-Technica. So that's that. Uh, let's get back into the interview with Mike Collision from Rogue Planet Mastering here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. At what point did you make the conscious decision to involve another person in your business to do that? I realized that it was, and I think that part of this came from when I was mixing and producing and then mastering. It's real easy to confuse different, you know, uh, projects. I guess I was pretty bad at organizing them then. And I think a lot of people, when they get a bigger workload, my first instinct was, oh, let me get an assistant. Let me get somebody to do, you know, sequencing or trimming the beginnings and ends of the songs or writing down my EQ settings. And I was like, well, you know what? I wonder if I couldn't save just as much time by having someone handle all the business side of the stuff. And then I can still do that stuff that I love to do but be much more efficient with it. And that's kind of how it's been. I mean, I'm able to handle a pretty heavy volume of work because we we use uh, this system called Trello. I don't know if you're familiar with Trello, but essentially what it is, is it's, a, it's free, it's a website, and you can create cards. And these cards have bins and you can customize these bins. So I'll actually pull them up and read them to you exactly what they are because I think we have it pretty dialed. Um, so I have my own mastering board. And on the mastering board, we have submissions, which anything that's in submissions, when an artist wants to submit something to master, they go to our website, we have kind of a client login area, and they can fill out all this information about the project, uh, give us some details, and that essentially creates a card in this submission bin, uh, which essentially has their contact, the name, um, how many songs are in the project, you know, what they're looking for as far as instrumentals or vinyl pre-masters or a DDP, and then any notes. So this card, you can drag from one bin to another. So we have the submission bin, which means that this is a project that we're going to be working on, but we don't have everything we need to quite start it yet. Uh, maybe the, usually it's the mixes. The mixes aren't here. Um, so then once the mixes and, the, and then the album sequence and everything we need, then it gets put into this bin. And it's literally like having a whiteboard where you're taking something and moving it over into a bin called my inbox. And I know that anything that's in my inbox is now ready for me to start working on. So really all I have to do is come in in the morning and I look at my inbox and I see that right now I have one, two, three, four, five, six projects that are ready to go. And I can just take the, you know, they're ordered in the order we receive them. Sometimes they're rushed. Um, but I just, I can do it. And any of the files for any of these projects are already synced into a folder on my Dropbox, uh, already on my computer. So as soon as I turn wow. my computer on, they download, they're right there. Um, now, during this process, which involves a little bit of a back and forth between Steve and the client, I'm always CC'd on these emails. So I'm usually popping in to say something here and there. I, I don't want it to be a completely hands-off thing. I want to be in touch with the client. Um, but as far as getting like the nuts and bolts squared away, he's super organized, so I let him do it. Essentially, what I do is I'll do my first pass on uh, a project, 
and I I have a, a pending folder and a completed folder, and they're both synced with a Dropbox. And I put the project in the completed folder, and I take the card and I stick it in. I'm done with this, and then Steve knows it's done, and he can contact the client if I have any notes. I can put them on the card. Uh, so he does. He he takes some of the tedious uh, part of the interfacing with clients out of the way, so I can talk about how hey this song was awesome or I you know I think we need a mix change, um, but the other stuff is kind of handled and I think that that allows me to be a lot more productive. I think that is that software known as a CRM software client relation management or something client relation management I think that's Pro- right. pro- probably yeah. uh, I'm sure Steve would be like yes and and then go on this tangent about client relation management he's like, <laughs> huge he he worked for before this he worked for a pretty big online uh book publisher in the city that does ebooks and everything like that and i guess they had a team who worked and did all this organization with customer service and client relations and i think he's adapted a lot of the stuff that he learned there which was on a huge scale down to what we do and it's been huge it's been amazing so you've you've had good success with this this whole like focus on the 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 client customer client whatever you want to call them um their experience in submitting and connecting with you and mastering yeah yeah because i think that there's not um you know i i was listening to your podcast with kim rosen and she said that she has very few attended sessions i think that that's and, and it might be a product of her working out of home i think that that's just the way the industry is moving um, I think that the the huge studio in the middle of Manhattan where all the producers could just, you know, take their tapes and walk over to the studio and get it mastered was, uh, in my opinion, afforded by a different time in the record industry where there was money and there was time and people bought records. And I think now with the pace of everything, uh, I just don't really get that many attended sessions. I mean, I, I get probably a half a dozen a year and and maybe half of those are because I'm friends with the clients and they just want to come hang out and have a beer afterwards. Um, so it's, it's not that many and I don't have a problem with it at all. In fact, I think it's probably more productive because when people come up here and they sit in my room, they don't, I don't think they really know what they're hearing. You know, how are they going to make a call on the low end when they're used to listening to some, you know, focals with a six inch driver and then they come here and listen to these 200 pound B and W's and it sounds completely different. Uh, I almost would rather do something where it's like, okay, I'm going to master your stuff on Thursday morning, be at your desk, and I'm going to run off a pass, or I'm going to run off three versions, and I'm going to send it to you over FTP within 10 minutes. Uh, you can listen to it, and you can get back to me and give me some tweaks. And we almost it's like almost like a, a virtually attended session, which I'll do from time to time. But I like when people are listening in their listening environment, because usually when people come up here... Or I, I can honestly say that I've never had like an EQ tweak when anybody was sitting in my chair, but I've had them go home and I've had them listen to it and say, you know what? I think it's a little bit bright overall, or it could use a little bit more low end. Um, so to me, as much as I love dealing with the clients and that that's definitely something that I miss from production, you know, having that when you have a really cool band in and you're hanging out with them and you're, you know, you're joking around a little bit and then that's cool. You know, you make a lot of friends recording, um, and I, I miss that, but from like a pure, purely economical point of view, it's way more efficient to just do the unattended sessions, you know? Are you familiar with this new, fairly new online mastering thing, Lander? Yes, I am. And uh, do you, how do you feel about that? I think that there's maybe a place for it. I hope that the place for it, if there is a place for it, is for people who are doing, you know, songwriting or demos or maybe something for TV and they just need to send, you know, a couple snippets off and they, you know what I mean? Uh, it's maybe, If it's replacing the L2 on the master bus, I can't really get that angry with it. Uh, I don't think it sounds very good though. When it first came out and a couple times since I've tried it out, I have a friend who has a subscription and he works at a, a post house. So I think that they use it when they have like a big long thing that they need to send off to somebody to, you know, over the weekend to listen to and review. Maybe it's a TV show or whatever. But he's done a couple, I've sent him a couple things and then I've mastered them while I'm waiting. Okay, now send them back and let me listen. And I have yet to feel threatened by a piece of software on the internet. Maybe one day it'll happen, but. I, I had a, I did some mixes for, for a band and, um, didn't hear from them and they finally came back and said, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We are going to use the mixes that you sent us, but can you send us 24 bit versions for mastering? I was like, Oh great, cool. Sent them off. And I said, well, who's mastering it? And, and they were like, 
well, have you heard of this thing called Lander? And I was like, oh, shit. Oh, no. Yeah. It was out of my control. So I just let it go. I was like, all right, well, it is what yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, if I was making like, if I were making beats, let's say, and I was mm-hmm. making dozens of these beats and and I wanted to just put together a quick sampler, I mean, I could see it coming in handy then, although I would probably just buy Ozone or something like that. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that that people who are making really good, great music can hear the difference. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, if they're at least if they're given a choice, you know, a comparison, I don't think it's there. So you're you're charging fifty bucks a tune, mm-hmm. is what you said earlier, and obviously you charge for extras like DDP files or mastered for iTunes, and your business is word of mouth. You have this facility. Your overhead's fairly low. Sounds like quite kind of a sweet deal for you there. I think you. Uh, I, I'm curious that, uh, like, if I go to your website, there's just like the presentation's great. You have a lot of oh, records you. up there thank and, you. and you look at it and go, Oh, okay. Well, this person's obviously working. So what would you attribute that, uh, constant influx of work from when there's, and, and I mean, I don't mean any disrespect by this, but there's so many choices out there and there's even online mastering with universal, uh, Abbey road, yeah. this lander thing. I mean, it's it's pretty dense. I mean, if you open up an issue of Tape Op, the ads for mastering engineers alone is high. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you think? Um, I think that a part of it, like I, I think I mentioned before, is maybe the relationships that I'd built with other engineers when I was an engineer. Um, I was kind of always the I'm I'm a pretty big nerd. I was always the guy who got the call when there was a Pro Tools question. You know, I was always the guy who, when the computer broke, I would go fix the computer or build the computer for the guy. I've always been kind of techie like that. So I've, in that capacity, have made some pretty good relationships with other engineers, you know, in my area or, you know, in my area being New York. I mean, there's quite a few. So I think that that's part of it. I think another part of it is just, you know, doing best work I possibly can and putting myself out there. Uh, I've never, especially for someone who's, who I think does really great work, I, I mostly go after uh, engineers rather than uh, bands, just because I think that it's kind of a, if you're going to spend your time trying to get work from someone, if you get an, if you can get an engineer, you know, you're going to get a steady flow of work and it's, it's more effective that way. But I've always been willing to do a free, t- multiple free test masters. Hey, let me, let me show you that I can do what I say I can do. And I think that that's kind of been what's won guys over. Um, and, and I, you know, I don't, I'm humble about it, but at the same time, like I want to be the best mastering engineer in the history of the world. That's what I want to be. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I am not afraid to tell people that that's my goal. And, you know, it's like, Hey, you're, you're going to this place and you're spending $300 a song now. I think I can do just as good or better of a job for a quarter of that or less. Give me a shot. What do you think? And and sometimes they do. And then sometimes they're like, wow, you're my new mastering guy. And then sometimes they're like, well, I don't like it as much, you know, but doing that constantly has definitely been a huge part of it. Obviously use some form of DAW uh, to master. What's, what's the DAW of choice for you? So I am mastering in Reaper. Okay. I was a Pro Tools guy since, you know, I meant to look this up before I was before I came on, but do <clears throat> you remember the Digi 001? Yeah. I was a Pro Tools guy since the Digi 001, Pro Tools 5, uh, probably in 2099, somewhere along there. So I've been using it religiously since then. But with mastering, and like I said, I'm a big, big workflow guy. There were some things that I wish, it was like, man, if Pro Tools could just do this, this, and this, it would save me so much time and it would help me work more efficiently and just work, do better work. Because like I said, I'm big on that. The the, le- the less time I can spend doing some kind of tedious, repetitive task, the more I can focus on listening to the music, you know? So I kind of did some research and I tried out. Uh, I, I heard that you were making a switch to Studio One. Did you wind up doing that? I did. Yeah. So I tried Studio One version three, which was very cool, I have to say. Um, there were a couple of very minor things that were probably specific to exactly what I was doing that were that didn't work out quite for me, but it was an awesome DAW. Uh, one of the big things that it has that led me to try it out was the item-based effects, where you can apply a real-time plugin or effect to a specific region of audio. And I know that Studio One does that, Reaper does that, 
uh, Samplitude and Sequoia do that. And uh, that was kind of big for me with mastering because, you know, let's say that I have five songs that I'm working on and they're all pretty much the same, but maybe one needs a little bit of a de-esser and then the one needs, you know, they, they, they need minor changes that I can achieve with a plugin. Uh, in Pro Tools, I have to break these out to five different tracks to have different processing chains on a per track basis. In Reaper or Studio One or Sequoia, I can apply those plugins specifically to those audio regions. Uh, looking even more in depth, let's say that I want to add a little bit of width in a chorus only. I can separate that you know, chorus, tab to the transient of the downbeat of the chorus, tab to the transient of the downbeat of the next verse, isolate that chorus, and say, I just want to you know, add a, a little bit of a width in the high frequencies in this part and maybe a little bit of a gain boost. Um, you can do that in these DAWs without having to add, put it onto a new track, which kind of just keeps things organized and tidy. Um, and I like in uh, Reaper has a couple other things that I, I really liked about it. Um, but it, I like being able to kind of you know jump around from song to song. Oh, this song's a little dark. Let me just bring up this plugin and tweak. And now I've just tweaked on this song, you know. And it just allowed me to set up my workflow uh, exactly how I wanted it. Reaper is almost less of a DAW and more of like a toolkit to create the DAW that you want to have. Uh, it's super deep, probably too deep. I'm hearing silent cheers from the Reaper community right now yeah. as you say this. <laughs> yeah. Somebody else like uh, was using Reaper on the show and I got a message on Facebook from somebody who was like, yes, Reaper. <laughs> oh, it is. Reaper is, there are certain things about it that you're like, how how is it that cool? I mean, first off, the download is like 18 megabytes for the whole thing. You know what I mean? It's like, it's the size of like a, a 10 minute song MP3. It's it, it downloads instantly and you just drag it onto your computer and that's it. It works. But there are, I mean, it, the menus in this thing go on forever and the options and every action that the the dog can perform every single action is is listed as and you can create macros of these custom actions and map and create custom buttons and map series of actions to keystrokes um and it's a little bit overwhelming and it probably took me like three or four months of going through every menu and saying i don't need this you can remove items from menus you can add new items so i kind of like stripped it down to nothing and then created my own key commands and my own tool sets specific to exactly how I like to work. Are you on a Mac or a PC? I am on a Mac. Mac guy forever. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah, Reaper really seems to be uh, definitely making inroads on a daily basis. And uh, sure, Studio One also seems to be winning over a lot of people. Pro Tools is definitely um, suffering a bit. People are wanting to jump ship for a number of reasons. Yeah, which which I thought was interesting. I've I've heard things about, uh, and I don't know if this is substantiated at all about Avid possibly selling or someone buying Pro Tools. But I always thought that if somebody took that company and just said, "Okay, we're going to assign ten people each to use every other major DAW on the planet for six months, and then we're going to have them report back what's cool about this, what's cool about this." I mean, they could so easily just like make it back into a blockbuster. But it seems like they just aren't. I mean, how long did it take them to add track freezing? That was like, you know, it was like, who are they listening to? Um, they have this like they're sitting on a gold mine, but they just have to take that extra initiative. I think Reaper and Studio One, I think they, um, or Reaper and Personas, they, I think they, I feel like they listen to their audience. Absolutely. Yeah. I know that Reaper is, is coded, it's made here in New York City by a very small group of people. And, um, Actually, the guy who owns the company, do you remember Winamp? Yep. He developed Winamp. And that was like his thing. He created Winamp. And I guess he sold it to either AOL or someone for like a sizable chunk of money. And from what I recall, I think they have this on their website. He just had all this money, millions of dollars from the tech boom selling this piece of software and was playing in bands and recording music and just didn't like any of the DAW offerings that were out there. So he just made his own. And from what I understand, it's a very small group of people. They have a super tight-knit forum. They update it constantly. I mean, it's like once a week there's an update to Reaper. And then you look at what's changed, and it's just all these little things that they're going through and fixing constantly. Again, I would be scared personally to do a audio production in it because there's so much, and I'm so afraid that I'm going to mess something up. But for mastering, I have it so dialed to exactly what I want. I mean, I think it saves me like 30% as far as time savings, you know. 
Interesting. Well, and from a mastering perspective, which I, I also do, I the mastering portion of Studio One is what attracted me to that program to begin with. And then as I began to dig into the, the mixing part of it, I was just like, this is a no brainer for me. I'm going to do this. Yeah. Are you still on, you were using version two or are you still, are you using three now? No, or? I'm on three. I'm on three. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very cool. I'm on the latest version and, and it's been fantastic. I got to say. So I've, t- I, I always talk about this with, with other guests and that is, is, you know, your approach to, to gear and, it's a business where we get very passionate about gear and the gear less thing can really take someone down and it can also preoccupy them and it can also just constantly suck up all available funds. Sure. Because it's just like feeding an addiction. Yep. Uh, where do you stand on all that for yourself? That's a great question. You're right. It can, it's, the gear is so sexy that it can easily become what you're, you're working to buy more gear. Um, and, since I'm kind of new to this specifically mastering type of thing and and I did have to sell off a lot of gear, I, I was definitely a gearhead. And if you ask one of my best friends is uh works at a dealership and I buy everything from him. And if you asked him right now, he would tell you I have one of the worst cases of gear acquisition syndrome possible. But in my twisted reality of the situation, I'm trying to find the chain that is exactly what I want. And I'm looking at one, two, three, four, five pieces of equipment that are keepers. They're not going anywhere. There's three other pieces of equipment in my chain that are like, I don't, I'm not sure if they're going to stay forever. Um, but I want to get to the point where I, I know exactly what I want. I, I have exactly what I want rather. And I stick with it for a long time. Um, because I think, you know, changing things up and, and trying new things is is great and it keeps you on your toes. But I also think that a lot of engineers are constantly shooting themselves on the foot by changing things before they really learn how to use them. Before you can get to the point where you're so comfortable and so familiar with the gear that it just kind of disappears and you're just working on the music. There have been times where I have bought a piece of equipment. Like I, I bought this, um, there's a company, NIF, they're a Finnish company, and I bought a very new compressor from them. And it's I love it. It's great, but it's a little tricky to use. The controls are strange. Um, to be specific, the attack time is always a, just a percentage of the release time. So whatever the the release is, is you know, you set the release to whatever you want. And let's say you have the release set to, you know, 500 milliseconds. If you want the attack to be 50 milliseconds, you have to set it to 10%. That's how it works. And it's a little strange. And I've spoken with the designer who's a fantastic and brilliant guy. And and he says that this is just a product of the design. That's how it has to work. And um, because of that, it, it it works backwards. I always like to set compression, set the, you know, make the release real short, set the attack and try to feel out the attack and then play with the release. You have to work the other way. Um, so at one point I was like, you know what? I'm going to sell this. I, I can't use this thing. I don't know how to use it. And I was like, you know what? Never mind. I'm not going to sell it. I'm going to spend another year with it. And I'm really, really going to learn how to use it and then make the call on it. And I think a lot of people get something and then they don't get exactly what they want right away sonically. And then maybe jump ship, sell it, get something else. Uh, whereas it's, it's, you have to spend the time with it. You, know? you have to really learn how to use it. So I'm hoping that in the near future, I can get to the point where my tools are pretty much set. I can add little pieces as I come and go, but the foundation is in place and... I can just focus on the music. How do you uh, continue to educate yourself and train yourself? Uh, experimenting constantly. I always try to make time to do it. I'll go back to songs that I mastered. Just yesterday, I had a, it's kind of a scary experience. I went back to a song that I mastered completely out of the box. Uh, you know, with twenty thousand dollars worth of more worth of you know analog gear, tube gear, and I just mastered it with Stephen Slate plugins. <laughs> And then I compared it back to the other one and I was like, oh, it's very close. You know, it's kind of scary. Um, but stuff like that, stuff like, you know, di- trying this EQ instead of this EQ, going back to different mixes, trying different limiters. I always like to try, you know, new plugins or um, because it's always easy to demo them, you know, and, and just experimenting with different things. And even sometimes with unorthodox things, I, I have pieces of gear in my rack that I use for something that's completely different than the intended purpose of that piece of gear. Um, I have a I have a compressor EQ here that I have never I use it on almost every project and I have never used it to EQ or compress. You know, so it's just buying things and just trying. Hey, what would happen if I I'm going to just turn the input of this up and turn the output down? What happens? You know, let me just try some crazy stuff and not be afraid to make a mistake. Um, and that's 
kind of how I continue to educate myself. I like that. I like that. That and talking to people and listening to people, you know, and not taking anything for granted. Try to learn something from everybody. Well, this has been great, man. I've enjoyed this this conversation. I've learned quite a few little details from you. Uh, I'm going to check out some of these things you've mentioned. And and for the listener, I, I hope you will do that as well. So I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. This has been great. Right on, Mike. All right, Matt. Well, you have a fantastic day. All right, you too. Take care. Easy. Bye-bye. Michael Asian from Rogue Planet Mastering here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. A lot of good information there. I really enjoyed that interview and uh, want to thank Mike Collision again for coming on the show and taking the time to speak with us. So hope you enjoyed that. Hey, but you know the drill. We are out of time, but of course, there it is. There's Cliff Truesdale. I want to thank Cliff. I want to thank Chuck Smith. I want to thank Cole Williams for his help on the show. And I want to thank our sponsors, Gearslets.com, Audio-Technica, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio, and DistroKid. And as usual, I want to thank you all for listening. I appreciate it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.